Hi friends, before we dive in, I've got some exciting news for you. We've just launched an exclusive free online community on Facebook for all our high performance health listeners. If like me, you're on a mission to elevate your health, boost your performance and prolong vitality, then I invite you to join us. I go live in there every single week with bonus coaching tips, latest biohacks I'm trying and sharing extra insights from podcast guests that you won't find anywhere else. And if you're keen to join a tribe of like-minded women seeking to become their best selves, then just head over to angelafoster.me forward slash HPH. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-F-O-S-T-E-R dot me forward slash H-P-H. I'm really looking forward to connecting with you in there. Think of the brain and the body, not as a machine that if one part's broken, you can take it out and put it back like if your air conditioner breaks or something. It doesn't work like that with the brain. Every single thing is connected to every single other thing. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance, and longevity. My name is Angela Foster, and I'm a former corporate lawyer turned high performance health coach. Each week, I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights, and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance, and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now let's dive in. Hi friends, in this week's episode, we're going to be talking all about the brain and how to keep it healthy and also the mind. What really is the mind? What's the difference between the mind and the brain and how the mind is really the body's life force? We also talk about how the non-conscious mind operates 24-7 and is highly intelligent and what its role is when you're asleep. We also talk about neuroplasticity, the effect of antidepressant medication on the brain and also, importantly, on sexual health and a whole lot more. I'm excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Caroline Leaf, who is a communication pathologist, audiologist, clinical and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology and a BSc in logopedics, specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Since the early 1980s, Dr. Leaf has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health and the formation of memory. And she was one of the first in her field to study how the brain can change with directed mind input. And she's helped hundreds of thousands of students and adults learn how to use their mind to detox and grow their brain to succeed in every area of their lives, including school, university, and the workplace. She has a new book out, How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess, which follows her other hugely popular book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, five simple scientifically proven steps to reduce anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking. I've read both of them, they're both brilliant. We'll put a link in the show notes to both of those books. So now, without further delay, let me welcome back Dr. Caroline Leaf. So Dr. Caroline, I'm so excited to welcome you back to the show. I've been really looking forward to this. I know last time you were on, it was a really popular episode, um, albeit a bit short. We didn't have much time. So thank you so much for coming back today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Angela. It's great to see you again and great to talk to you again. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um I think I'd really like to start with looking at, for you to explain, um, I was actually listening to you being interviewed by Ed Milet earlier this morning, uh, which oh, was a great cool. episode, really interesting. And I think a really good place to start uh, is for you to explain to listeners what the difference is between the mind and the brain, because I think this often gets muddled up. Oh, totally. And I think that's an excellent place to start because it's something that People are pretty confused about, you know, in the general kind of languaging of today in the media and just how people talk about the mind and the brain, it would appear that they're the same thing. And the words are used interchangeably. You know, people go, oh, my mind or oh, my brain or, you know, fixing your mind or fixing your brain. They use very interchangeably and as though they won, but they're so incredibly different. So your brain is literally a physical substrate, very complex, obviously um, it's often compared to a computer, but it's way more complex than a computer. A computer basically would be similar to just one neuron in the brain in terms of its functionality versus the complexity of how the brain works. But the brain can't switch itself on. It, it can't do anything on its own. It has to be activated. And the mind is the activator of the brain, if that makes sense. So if you think of it like this, if we did, our brain is disintegrating, our body is disintegrating, nothing's happening. That's logical. But we're alive and having this conversation and your viewers and your listeners are able to process and, and respond and think and feel and choose about this information that we're sharing. And that is because of their mind. So our mind is our aliveness that activates the brain and the brain and the body collectively together respond to the mind. 
So it's an interaction between the aliveness of the mind that enables us to think and feel and choose and respond to everything that we experience in life. And it does this through absorbing literally the electromagnetic sound light waves and the sound waves and the gravitational fields and all of that gets brought into into our mind zone or mind area which is somewhere around and through all of our of um, brain and body and the brain and body are activated and respond and they respond in a way that the information is built into the brain by the mind and the mind brain connection into the brain as as tree-like structures i've got a little tree over here so it's like a tree-like structure and um, into the body, it changes all the cells of the body and gets built into what we call the cytoskeleton of the cell. So cells in our body have an ability to store experiences as well, a little bit different to the brain, but they st we store them in our body too. And then the experience is also stored in the fields, gravitational fields of the mind, sometimes referred to as the biofield or just the energy. I, I think of it as on physics, on a physics level, as electromagnetic light waves and and you can even think of a podcast. If, you, if you're just listening to a podcast, you can see the little lines going up and down. That concept of a wave of energy, that's kind of how our mind stores the information. So every experience we have because of our mind is stored in our mind and our brain and our body. As soon as you die, that doesn't happen anymore. You, you, nothing happens. So your mind is most on the, in the most basic level or on the most basic level is your ability to be alive, to process life. And the brain is the how, what it uses to physically process life into and then the brain drives the body and then the three together work as one and we show up in this conversation in our relationships in life every moment of every day detoxification is so important now more than ever with the number of toxins we are exposed to daily in our food water personal care products and environment no matter how careful we are it's impossible to totally get away from the chemicals and we also have to think about detoxifying the toxins we produce through cellular respiration and clearing excess hormones like estrogen our skin is one of the key ways we detoxify, and that's why I love to include sauna as part of my weekly routine. But going to a facility with a sauna can be time-consuming, and investing in one yourself has been expensive in the past. That's why I love Bond Charge's sauna blanket. It has so many benefits, from raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise, so you burn calories whilst you relax. You can burn up to 600 calories in just one session. The sweating helps flush out heavy metals and other toxins, and the infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you, meaning you get the same benefits at a lower heat. Bond Charge's sauna blanket is easy to set up, taking less than a minute. It heats up rapidly and you can enjoy a session for 30 to 40 minutes whilst relaxing, reading, watching TV or even meditating. So you can truly stack your hacks. Bond Charge's sauna blanket is also low EMF compared to other brands on the market and it's the quickest on the market to heat up. So it's an easy thing to fit in. When I'm not working out in the morning, you'll find me meditating in my Bond Charge sauna blanket with their red light therapy mask on my face, boosting collagen while I relax. And Bond Charge are giving listeners of this podcast 20% off their sauna blankets, red light therapy devices and other wellness products. Bond Charge ship worldwide in rapid time with free shipping on every sauna blanket and 12 months warranty. Simply go to bondcharge.com forward slash Angela and enter code Angela20 at checkout. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com forward slash A-N-G-E-L-A and use code Angela20 to save yourself 20%. With the mind then, is it fair to say, it sounds like from what you're saying, the mind, because no one really knows exactly where it is, right? But it's actually in every cell in our body, right? It's not like we can attribute it to one area. It's not in the head necessarily. Good, good point. It's embodied. Okay. We talk about it's the mind okay. body, and we talk about the mind being around the body as well. We're not sure how far out the oh, mind around the body. Okay. Yes. So all of us have like a biofield around us. It's almost like you know electrostatics. If you walk past someone and you know you get that like little electric shock sometimes. That's mm -hmm. um, you know that there's there's um because of what our body is generating in terms of heat and. Um, we, we're generating electromagnetic light waves from our body, but that's because we're alive. So it first comes in and then we generate it out. So when you put an EEG on someone's head, for example, you are reading mind action in the brain. 
you see, you're reading the response of the brain to the mind, an fMRI, an EKG on your heart, um, any kind of ultrasound, all of that is looking at life happening in the body and activating the body to respond. Because an ultrasound on a dead person won't show you anything, an EEG on a dead mm. person won't show you anything. So that's kind of a nice way to picture it. So the mind is this is not in one area, it's around and through everything. Okay, and also outside of us. Amazing. So yeah. it sounds like the mind is our life force, right? Because then when yeah, someone's dead, it's gone. That's what you see. Exactly. That's exactly what, that's why I say aliveness, life force, aliveness. Yeah, okay. that's a really great way of seeing it. So with that being the case, then, when people talk about mind, body, spirit optimization, that sounds to me to be duplicative, because actually, mind and spirit seem to be the same thing. Good question. Excellent. You're very insightful. So mind has got different levels. So we've got to think of the mind, the brain, the body, and think of in the mind as having different levels. The conscious mind we're operating in now, we're consciously awake, but we were asleep a few hours ago. Um, so that, that when you go to sleep or when you're under anesthesia or when you are knocked out with a baseball bat, hopefully that won't happen, but something like that, you are in your consciousness goes and you are in a state of sleep, which would be unconsciousness. So you have conscious mind when you're awake. And then when you go to sleep, you become, you know, your mind goes into, into a state of unconsciousness, but it's it, that unco that's not doing anything. It's just basically a brain state. So you think of it like this conscious mind, non-conscious, N-O-N. The non-conscious mind is the biggest part of us. It operates 24-7. It's highly intelligent. It's beyond space and time. And so it's not bound by present, past, and future. Extremely complex, and it never goes to sleep. During the day, our non-conscious mind is helping us process everything that's going on around us. 95% of what we are exposed to on, in any one moment is being absorbed by the non-conscious mind and evaluated by the non-conscious mind. We consciously are only aware of about 5%. The conscious mind's only awake when you're awake. The non-conscious NON is therefore awake 24-7. Between the two, we have the subconscious. The subconscious is like a doorway or a portal between the conscious mind and the non-conscious mind. So when we go to sleep, the conscious mind and the subconscious mind pretty much go to sleep as well. And the brain goes into an unconscious state. But the non-conscious is still functioning, which is why we have dreams and why we you know, process stuff. Your non-conscious mind, when you're asleep, is basically trying to help you sort out what's been happening during the day and to prepare you for the next day and to kind of scan and do kind of a housekeeping type function and scan through the networks of your mind-brain-body connection to see, okay, what today did this person absorb that is disruptive to their functioning? Maybe some an argument or maybe some kind of horrible thing that happened or politics or racism or you know poverty. You know, those are big words for specific individual experiences each person has, but in those kind of categories. And those toxic things would be disruptive to functioning. And those toxic things would have wired into the brain and created a, a tree that a thought tree network that would look unhealthy versus healthy. And so those are disruptive to our physical and mental functioning. So the role of the non-conscious when you're asleep is to work with the brain in its non-conscious state and, and the body in a non-conscious state to find out, uh, to find these disruptive things and prepare us for the next day, do whatever fixing up it can do. And then when we wake up the next day, it sends, gathers all this data and sends us signals through the subconscious into the conscious mind to as as like signals exactly what a signal is to pay attention to something that's going on inside of us if that makes sense mm -hmm. so when we go through the day when we wake up and we start feeling maybe a bit of uneasiness or we find ourselves worrying or we find an intrusive thought keeps popping up or we find that there's a certain pattern that we've fallen into over the past few days or weeks or months those would be classified as signals that are coming from the non-conscious mind and into the conscious mind and they're calling our attention as and to pay attention to find what they're attached to what is the thought or the experience that they're attached to so that we can then deconstruct those and reconstruct those if they're disruptive to our functioning you don't want to keep disruptive um, networks in your brain that are thought thought networks you want to basically make them work for you you want to deconstruct them and reconstruct them and that leads to the optimization and you know, we were talking a little bit before moving into your future self and that kind of thing. 
Interesting. Okay. So I think this is when I interviewed, I don't know if you know, Dr. Patrick Porter, who's the founder of BrainTap. He talks a lot. And in fact, in BrainTap, you use the device and it sort of reprograms different thoughts and things. He talks about your other than conscious mind. And it sounds like that is the the non-conscious. Now, if the subconscious is this sort of portal, it's also kind of, I guess, spoken a lot about the fact that we're driven by the subconscious mind and only something like 5% of the behaviors we we adopt are conscious and we kind of put things onto automatic pilot. Is that, well, now that we understand this distinction, actually there are three layers, where is that happening? That sort of programming and the belief systems and things, where, where are they residing? Okay, so the concept of programming has been around for years and it's not actually accurate because- okay. Program implies something that's fixed. You know, often, it's often referred to as the old cassette tapes. People often mm. use that analogy of a cassette tape that just gets stuck and replays and replays and replays. And it makes that level of our humanity seem very almost mechanical and unintelligent. And that's the last thing that it is. So what happens is that we experience something and whatever we think about the most will grow and become dominant and organically grow more and more. So if we have a certain... Um, way of responding to something and we build that into a network in the brain and we stabilize that we what we're essentially doing is building a habit and that takes around about 63 to 66 days to form the basic sort of peak what we would we would call a peak plateau happening where it's now become a behavior that's driving your functioning but it's not a mechanical program per se it is a very organic and developing way of functioning that is um, if it's negative it's going to be um, challenged by the the healthy the, the wise part of us the non-conscious part of our mind that's protecting us that's going for survival that is wired for love for, for you know for some of us scientists we talk about things our brain brain body connection our psychoneurobiology being wired for love so it's so there's always opposition to anything that is going to threaten our survival in any way so there's a lot of stuff going on in the unconscious that's very organic and very dynamic and very interactive and then that in that that dynamism or or interaction of the unconscious protecting us and the unconscious to to make us aware of these these um, networks that have been built in that are very organic that combination pushes it through the subconscious subconscious doesn't hold anything there's no programs in the subconscious. That's the incorrect kind of understanding, but it's it's totally understandable if everyone thinks that because that's the language that's been used. Mm. But the correct thing is that the subconscious is simply a portal. It's a transferring place, and it, it, it the unconscious mind's so vast, and these 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 networks that are so dynamic are so vast because we've been building them since literally since birth, and and maybe even a little bit earlier than that. Um, and they are so vast that they, that our conscious mind can't doesn't work on the same at the same speed or doesn't have the same capacity as the non-conscious. For example, the non-conscious is operating at speeds of ten to the twenty-six, which is faster than four hundred billion actions per second. It's hugely fast. The conscious mind operates somewhere around the region of two thousand actions per second. So that's why we often hear our memories chunked into seven chunks, or that we can be aware of these things popping into our mind in chunks. And that's because the vastness of the non-conscious identifies these problematic areas, pushes them through the subconscious and they have to be funneled and they pop up as these kind of like my hand is doing, my fingers are doing this. These things pop up by roundabout and then they go back down again. So we have these thoughts, which are basically networks containing memories of things that we need to work on or pay attention to being moved and channeled through and if we don't stop and focus on them and do something about them they go back into the unconscious even stronger than before so it's not okay. this mechanistic thing it's a very dynamic interaction and a lot of stuff going on and what we as humans can do is we can train ourselves to become aware of those signals and i'll explain what those are once we get a little bit deeper but we essentially the idea is we can train ourselves to become aware of those signals. And the signals aren't always about bad stuff. The signals are also about good stuff, about the optimization type thing, um, concept about seeing, because that's really what you you talk a lot about in your podcast, is really trying to get the best out of of how you function as a human. And and that optimization, um, so what our non-conscious will do is it will 
try also look for the stuff that's been great in your life, like maybe a great conversation or a, a, a beautiful time spent with a loved one or a great book you've read or a great movie you've watched that made you feel great or a quote or whatever. And it will also grab those and push those through this portal of the subconscious into your conscious mind. And if we just kind of gloss over those moments, we lose an opportunity to really unmask our resilience and optimize our functioning. So we should train ourselves as well to look for the signals that are on a what we could say a positive scale or a healthy scale that are make you feel great and that kind of stuff um as well as the beat of the things that are toxic and we need to work on both and we're totally capable of doing that it's just a matter of organizing the messiness of our conscious mind and and helping our conscious mind to be more organized that's why i always talk about cleaning up the mental mess mm. it's process a lifestyle of training ourselves a skill that we build to be very aware that messiness is okay but we need to manage our messiness moment by moment um, otherwise we get stuck in a messy mode and then that tips the scales and we can start you know battling with mental health issues and things like that and and decrease intelligence optimization creativity and all those kinds of things does that make sense that does make sense. So if you had two children, for example, in a family and you're looking at them and one seems very laid back and always kind of happy disposition, doesn't get stressed out. The other seems very prone to anxiety. Is it then that one is observing more of these sort of, I don't want to label them as negative, but more of these signals coming up from the non-conscious mind that are, are not embracing of all the good things and the things that went well, whereas the other one seems to be trending more in that direction. So what you're focusing on you get more of would that be right is that is a sort of training their their brain almost themselves as to what it should, or their mind as to what it should do yes and no so so the yes part is that we have a unique each of us as we all know we're unique so our mind no two minds are the same i mean that really is the truth um we each have a unique way that we think feel and choose so for example people listening to this podcast now are hearing the same message the same words but they're processing them differently so that, that processing, their, their mind action, the think, feel, choose to make sense of what they're hearing is different for everyone. So take that uniqueness and lay that on the uniqueness of who a person is, how they actually function. Some Everyone's so different. So everyone looks at life in a different way. And a person that maybe is more um, sensitive versus someone who maybe seems more laid back, um, neither of those are negative qualities or neither is one better than the other. It's just that 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 trait of that person um, mixed with the unique way that they think, feel and choose. So, so sort of the genetics of the nurturing with, you know, so the nature, the nurture. And then there's the third factor we don't speak about enough. And that's the I factor. So there's what you're given genetically, your traits and what you how you you know, however you nurtured, what you exposed to your lifestyle, the environments you grew up in. Those two, there's always this, there's this debate between which is stronger than the other. It's not that one is stronger than the other. It's just that they work together in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a net sort of networked way, but they actually controlled by the I factor. And that's the uniqueness of who you are. So let's say you have a child who happens to have in their genetic disposition a beautiful, highly sensitive nature. Um, that, and, but they happen to maybe be in a school, uh, in the same school as the, as the sibling, um, who in their disposition also has a beautiful and I really stressed both of these are great tends to just take life a little bit more easy it's kind of you know goes with the flow a little bit more both great both um, it doesn't mean that the one just isn't sensitive and the one doesn't go with the flow but there's just a tendency to go in one direction a little bit more now you put those two people into a situation that is very similar but every experience that we have is always different and maybe that child who's highly sensitive gets teased a bit more or um, the teasing that they receive is felt on a scale of 10 versus the other one who's teased in the maybe the same way feels it on a scale of two or something like that and if it's constant if it's just a one-off situation it won't make, make a big difference but if it's a persistent thing that starts happening over time the, the, the child who's got a, maybe a more highly sensitive type trait within the complexity because you can't just simply categorize people so it's very broad what we're saying but the unique way that they're perceiving because of how they look at the world will let them, that means that they will take into themselves and wire into their networks um, a lot more around that teasing incident, for example, than potentially the other one. And then that can then flow over into how they perceive 
anything that's similar. So they get triggered because it becomes something that they maybe go home and think about and they don't know how to talk about it. So but they're ruminating on it. So it's getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, the negative side of this good trait. And so things get out of proportion and then each trigger becomes bigger than what it could potentially be. And so until we, so, so that then that lands up being a situation where they seem to be reacting to everything. And it's when a child starts getting into a pattern of seeming to be overreacting to everything and seeing that their sensitivity is now shifting in the wrong direction, that's a, a signal for a parent and a teacher not to think that there's something wrong with their brain or that they have a mental illness, which is unfortunately what the current biomedical model will tell you. It's to rather say, okay, this beautiful high sensitivity in this child is somehow disrupted and working against them. Something's going on. So we want to give that child the tools to be able to tell their story, to express themselves, to be able to express these emotions and how it feels in their body and the behaviors and you know how they're saying things and their perspective and, and they, they want to give them a way of actually unpacking that and processing it so deconstructing it and then reconceptualizing that to give it them to give them perspective because they've kind of lost perspective so that's a skill you can teach them on the other hand the child is so laid back could get into a situation where they build that that becomes a bad, a, a toxic sort of habit where they don't really, you know, they get away with things and they um, get kind of maybe rewarded for maybe not working as hard or, you know, do, just kind of made, managing to sort of be so laid back that it becomes a negative thing and it gets reinforced. So then that becomes something that works against them instead of for them. And the same sort of thing can happen. Does that make sense? So it's all it does. important that from very young, and this is my youngest patients in my in my clinic when I was still practicing were two and three years of age. And what I would work on first always was identity is to help, you know, obviously a child that's two, you've got to work on it with a parent and that kind of thing. But who am I? How do I uniquely think, feel and choose? How does your child uniquely think, feel and choose? Understanding more of that and building that in the person then saying, okay, this is how you look at life. Now let's see how that's working for you and against you. Obviously, if it's a young child, you're working with a parent to do that. But there are ways that you can um, verbalize this to a child in very simplistic ways. And that's why I've written this book. Um, that's my latest book, which is How to Help a Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess. We have mm. created character, this character called Brainy. And this is a little toy that, that people can also get if they're interested. And Brainy is throughout the book as a character that um, walks the mental health journey. And um, Brainy is has, a, has a, a superpower called the neurocycle, which is a, a process a five-step process that you can teach a two-year-old but it's how you when you feel overwhelmed by life when you feel sad or when you feel angry you can go through those steps and um and you can and it's all through Im imagery and and play and that kind of thing you can teach a child this but it gives them a tool for i feel oh, i don't know what to do with this energy and they don't have the words as, as a two three four five-year-old but if they know okay i feel like this I've, I, I can pick up my brainy or I can point to that picture in the book or I can do what my what my mom has taught me. They're not consciously thinking of that, but non-consciously you've given them a tool and they'll start using that tool of being able to then process. I mean, I'm sure you've seen just recently there was, I don't know if you saw it in the, in the UK, but there was a, a little clip on Good Morning America of a little, I think this child was three or three and a half and was talking about how he got very sad when his mom stopped him playing because he had to go to bed. But just the way that this three-year-old was able to say, you know, to talk through but that I felt sad because you told me that I had to go to bed and, and this made me feel like this and my tummy got sore and I did this and I know I got cross with you. You can, that child, the children are so insightful. And if you give them that ability to be able to process through, instead of it being a tantrum that you think you have to discipline and it creates all kinds of other issues, You've given a child a way of saying, okay, I, I did this. It upset the status quo in the house. This is why I did it. And this is what I'm pr processing through. And you've got a point that you can then connect and talk with that child. And it builds a deep, meaningful relationship. So that's what I've tried to do with, with the work that I've done and the research I've done over these years and you know, put it into simple terms for a parent to be able to empower themselves and their children in how to you know, manage this kind of situation. I'm inviting you to join our newly opened High Performance Health Facebook group, where we're all about unlocking our utmost potential. If you are a fellow biohacker, a coach, or a woman with an entrepreneurial spirit looking for peak performance, 
And our community of ambitious women is just for you. But it's not just about connecting with like-minded women. It's about empowering each other. We have weekly live training, Q&As, and a bunch of other exclusive content that I don't get the chance to share anywhere else. New biohacks I'm exploring, plus extra nuggets of wisdom from my podcast guests, and so much more. It's free to join. Simply click the top link in the show notes or go to angelafoster.me forward slash HP. That's angelafoster.me forward slash HPH or click the top link in the show notes. And once inside, send me a message so we can connect personally. I can't wait to see you there. And you've written so many books and every single book has thousands of like five-star reviews. It's just incredible how you translate what is actually very complex issues into practical steps for people to follow. Um, Really, really amazing. Oh, thank you. I try, I try and do that because when you start talking about mental health, we've all got so frightened by the term. Mm. Uh, I think parents are so frightened and adults and alike, I mean, humans, because of this whole, oh, you've got a brain disease. And, you know, it kind of makes you feel, oh, you've got cancer. It's that kind of feeling that people get. And, you know, it's the a mental health crisis is on the rise and you keep getting all this messaging. So people feel, what can I do? They don't feel empowered. So I'm trying to empower people to help themselves and help their children or kids you know nieces nephews whatever grandchildren to do to realize you can actually get this under control yeah you absolutely can and I I love your work it's been impactful on me and and my journey and you know when when I went through my personal journey with clinical depression I was told that I would always be on medication for the rest of my life and on you know not just antidepressants but also antipsychotics and I questioned that and thought there must be another way and kind of utilize the medication to allow me over time to do the work that I needed to do. And now I haven't taken medication in, in sort of coming up to four years, which Wonderful. I, and, and I've, and I've worked on and that, that feeling that I used to get of a sort of sense of trepidation and struggle about the day has gone. So you're absolutely like, it's not nothing set in stone, but it's quite something when, uh, you know, a very senior psychiatrist says to you, you, you need to be on medication. It's very risky for you to come off because of bipolarists and things like that. And I think it's disempowering. I, it's, I'm so happy with what you do because it's really, truly disempowering when you hear that message. I'm so glad you shared that. And, and you know, really congratulations for what you did and how you've just, you know, speaking you. about this because, and yeah, I really mean that because it's encouraging to other people because yes, this biomedical model has given um, psychiatry and a lot of, you know, psychologists this power that is, I believe has been abused. And I know it's, you know, the UK is really advanced when it comes to this, but more so than the United States and, and other parts of the world when it comes to challenging that model. Um, and, you know, you've got great people like Jenna Moncrief and Professor Jenna Moncrief at U- University College London and Professor Mark Horowitz and that people that I've worked with and have interviewed and so on that talk about um, the, 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 they've done the research showing, hey, we, you know, this, they, and they are psychiatrists saying, hey, you can't, this medication is not a medication, first of all, psychotropics, antidepressants, et cetera. They're not medications. A medication is something that is actually targeted towards a disease with the hope of alleviating the disease source or at least treating the symptoms. So the implication is that there's a symptom that's physical and it can be tracked to some biological cause in the brain or body. And that if you give the medication, it's targeting hopefully as close as possible because there's no medicine that's 100% accurate um, to help alleviate the symptoms. That model is the biomedical model. It works beautifully when it comes to physical ailments of the brain and the body. But when it comes to mind, mental health, things like depression and anxiety, those are not illnesses on the same level as, as diabetes. And they so often have been explained as we talk about our diabetes and bipolar is that by diabetes, it's nothing remotely the same. Because first of all, bipolar depression in itself is not a disease. Um, it's it's a it's a, sync, a signal that there's something that's not right in your life, and there's a signal of a series of things. And so it's one of those signals I spoke about earlier on. So if you if we think of the word bipolar depression, don't think of disease or brain disease. Don't think of label. Don't think of any of that. Rather think of oh, this is a description of information of about this. It's it's, it's a, a signal that's giving me information about something I need to pay attention to. It's something trying to get my attention. So depression is actually good for you. 
if it's balanced, if you think of a balancing scale, we have depression and anxiety and all those things in this part, and we have joy and excitement, whatever there. And we have to have both as humans because without feeling a bit depressed when you think of what's going on in the world, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be have any empathy. We, we we should feel depressed when we look at you know immigrants dying in boats, you know, outside of Greece and that kind of thing. Or we look at the racism. We should be depressed and sad because that motivates us to do something and to have empathy and to and to function in our humanity. But that's when it's balanced. But when we don't know how to manage that and we're told that we have a brain disease and we don't get a chance to talk about what's going on, that, that the, 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 the things in our life, and that gets ignored, well, then this is going to tip in the other direction because your non-conscious is sending you these signals and saying, hey, this toxic issue needs to be dealt with. And, you know, oops, a signal comes up a bit of depression and you don't deal with it, it goes back, it's bigger. Now the next time the depression's bigger. So the scale tips. So now depression shifts to the point where it's no longer working for you. It's now working against you. But it's still not a disease. But now it's creating... Uh, physical in, in, um, uh, physical things, vulnerabilities in your brain and body because it's tipped into the danger zone where now your brain and body immune system are activated to see that as a challenge. And so now we've got to we've got to get the scales back, and we get the scales back not by saying you have a chemical imbalance because that's not what you have. It does that's not the cause of your depression. To get the scale back in line, we have to allow you to tell your story. We have to allow you to embrace those signals to process them and reconceptualize them. We need to say, okay, how are you feeling? How's this showing up in your body? How's this affecting your perspective on life? How's this affecting your behaviors, what you say and what you do? Why do you think that's happening? Let's let's capture this information. Let's let's look at the patterns and the triggers. Let's look at this through another lens. Let's reconceptualize this. Let's see if we can reconstruct this. This has happened. We can't change what's happened, but we can change what it looks like inside of you. You know, what is the antidote? And then getting some sort of action that starts moving you in that direction and doing that, which is actually called a neurocycle, those five steps that I've just described, um, and, and we can label them in a moment. Those five steps, if you do those in a deliberate and intentional plan and guided way daily for around 15 to 45 minutes, you will rewire the mind-brain-body connection. Your work, conscious mind will work with a non-conscious mind, will listen to the messages coming through the subconscious, all the stuff we spoke about in the beginning will create a very insightful, deep connection that will enable you to drive the correct kind of energy through your brain to break down the toxic thoughts, this toxic tree. It doesn't disappear, but you find the root cause. This would be the root, the source of the issue. The tree trunk is how you process it. The branch is how it's showing up in your life in terms of emotions and behaviors and and um, perspectives and that kind of thing. So when we grab those emotions, behaviors, and perspectives, and we, through through gathering awareness of them, and we start tracking back and reflecting on them, and we start moving down to the roots level and finding the source, and then saying, okay, this has happened. I can't change what someone did to me. It's happened. But what can I do to change, um, to make this livable, to get peace in my life, to be able to move forward? What are the things? What help do I need? You then weaken this energy. Energy is never lost. This is full of energy. It's never lost. It gets transferred. So as we heal the roots, in the, in the children's book, I talk about giving, literally taking plant food and finding the sick roots and putting plant food on the sick roots so that you can get this, this part to shrink and get this part new, healthy tree trunks and branches to grow. So eventually this part, look how it's getting smaller and smaller, this part takes over. So I remember I was once bullied or teased or abused or had a terrible relationship or whatever it was, or collectively just too many things going on in your life. You remember all of that, but here's now what you have wired in as your new way of functioning. So when you triggered, this is what will come out. And you'll still remember this, but this is what will then be how you show up. It'll be a shift. And that process is done through a very organized, systematic, mind-driven neuroplasticity process. And that's where I spent 38 years researching and still researching and doing developing theories and clinical application. And as I said, still doing current studies, writing up in science journals and that kind of thing. How do we find the signals, deconstruct and reconstruct them? And the neurocycles is collective body of knowledge that I've put together as, as a simple five-step process within which you can put all the great, you, know, you, you can use affirmations, but you use them at step five, not at step one. You use an affirmation at step one, it won't work. It will, it'll just be a band-aid on the wound. You can use, you know, there's some great CBT techniques out there like visualization and, you know, and different ways. Of, but if you use them 
in any of the in, in step one through four, they won't work. But if you do steps one through four and use CBT at, at techniques in step five, that's going to work for you. you. We've all got great things that we've worked out in our lives or that people have told us that we apply, you know, a great statement or a great way of, you know, um, like I read something in, in, in the news today about um, a principle that is um, that is where we, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's a, a Chinese sort of philosophy of going with the flow kind of idea. And so this is a beautiful principle to wire in. But if you just go with the flow at step one, you, you haven't processed the issue. You've got to first deconstruct this thing. And then the go with the flow idea, which is brilliant, would be great for step five or step using in step four and five. So in other words, what I'm saying is I'm, I haven't developed the answer to life. I have just simply created a system. I'd never claim that. No one should ever try and claim something like that. What I have created is a system that aligns with the psychoneurobiology of how we as humans function. And if you've put thing, whatever you want to do, just put it into that order and in and into the time frame that I have researched so intensively. And other scientists have, I mean, this is based on science that also already exists, because you always new science always comes out of out of existing science and then you take it further. You are then being given the tools where you can rewire your brain and optimize your functioning. You know, build the good stuff, detox the bad stuff, and, you know, be a very well-balanced functioning human being that allows yourself to be messy, allows yourself to be depressed and anxious and frustrated, and but to see where's the balance. Okay, my balance is going off. I need to do a little bit of work. Mm. That makes sense. Isn't that interesting? Because obviously anxiety, I, I think it was one, one of the doctors also said, you know, it's the flip side of the same coin as depression. And then I definitely did find that the anxiety came alongside. But it's interesting because when you stop kind of um, trying to push it away and accept, well, maybe on some level that anxiety, as you say, is here to serve me and point things out, it can dissipate so much more quickly because Absolutely. you're not resisting it. Yeah, because anxiety in itself, if you think of it, Diabetes makes sense. It's something wrong. Diabetes type type one. There's something wrong with the pancreas. That makes sense. But when you say anxiety disorder, what does it mean? It's what we call a tautology. Because you'll say, I feel anxious. And I'm having these thoughts of anxiety. And I'm worrying a lot. And I feel on edge. So you'll be a couple of very broad descriptions. But it's still not detailed. It's just a list of descriptions. Then you'll get told, oh, you have an anxiety disorder. And then you'll say, but why do I have an anxiety disorder? Well, because you have those symptoms. Well, why do I have those symptoms? Because you've got an anxiety disorder. Can you see you're going in circles? Mm. Yeah, it's a virtual circle. You can't get out of it. You, you're in, and yeah, but it's, and it's a tautology. You can't say the cause is also the symptom and the mm. symptom is also the cause. Also, to say that your brain caused it is also the wrong way around because we don't even have evidence of that so the science that the, the so-called your oh, chemical bipolar is a chemical imbalance or depression is a chemical imbalance that never was a theory it was a theory it was never proved and in fact meta-analyses have been done and there was a paper published in the UK University College London last year that had I think 20 million plus hits which is huge for one of the it's in the top most read journal articles in the past 75 years or something I did some some statistic huge statistic like that which shows how it caught the public's attention and the reason why is because they actually showed hey we've got to stop telling people that depression is an it and it's a chemical imbalance and that if you just give someone a a drug um, then that's going to fix it so an antidepressant is seen as this medicine that's fixing it and we started talking about this earlier it's not the correct way of seeing it that that antidepressant is not restoring chemicals that are missing it's simply numbing the brain so that for a moment in time you don't feel so overwhelmed by all your emotions but if you keep numbing your brain you don't resolve the problem you're just going to get worse and you're going to get damaged to your brain so you don't want to use it long term you want to you know withdraw very carefully and very slowly don't just stop your drugs but like you've done you've weaned yourself off because at some point you have to actually deal with the issue those drugs aren't fixing the issues, not the chemical imbalance. There may be some chemical change because it's the mind works through the brain and it's disruptive and so on, but that's not what's going to fix it. So therefore, it's not an antidepressant, not a medication fixing a chemical imbalance, like insulin is fixing a, a damage to the to the pancreas. It what it what an antidepressant is doing is it's actually got nothing to do with the issue. It's actually just simply it's like it's a drug not a medication it's a drug that has a psychoactive effect so it's changing the way that the brain functions so you don't feel 
the impact of your life story as badly for a time. But that doesn't help because it has side effects. And then people get told your disease is getting worse and they get all the wrong languaging. And then you labeled with, oh gosh, I've got this disease and I'm getting worse and nothing helps. And I've got to be on medication the rest of my life. And it's dangerous if I go off. It's dangerous if you stay on it because you never deal with stuff. And then, yeah, as you said, you've got, and they wanted to give you an antipsychotic. What, it has, what ends up happening is because of the medication, doing things to your brain and because of the medication not helping you to process your stuff you've got now double trouble you've got to deal with the, the change in your brain and you've got to deal with the fact that you haven't dealt with your stuff yet so of course you're going to feel worse that's mm -hmm. not your disease getting worse that's the treatment that was wrong mm -hmm. it needs to be just for an acute moment for a short period of time allow you to get to space and then work through that stuff therapy using my system my system plus therapy whatever you whatever works for you but you need to work through the stuff you've got to embrace process and reconceptualize and that way you then get empowered and get control again as opposed to them you know telling you hey this is the label this is the drug it's all been disproved mm. but yeah no I saw that that's, uh, yeah, that's and it's crazy it's how they hand it out and, and yeah having had personal experience I think it was that that for me was very disempowering and I think had I not been such a strong person and I didn't have the right therapy alongside it which I'm very very grateful for because yeah. that therapist allowed me to rethink my thoughts Wonderful. and then I, I achieved what, you, what you're describing there eventually the medication will make you feel numb because it's blunting depressive experiences but it's also blunting the highs and that's when I realized but I think yeah. you know one thing and I, and I wouldn't encourage I, I'm not obviously in a position to say to anyone come off medication but one thing that happens as you titrate down is you will or, or certainly I did experience those bipolar episodes the depression all of that comes back because you're getting kind of withdrawals and I think that's scary for people and not well understood so it had to be so it took it took many many months to kind of come off that I'm so glad that you you brought that up because and, and I have got I've interviewed Jana Moncrief and Mark Horowitz and various different people that are experts in this in fact the Royal College of Psychiatrists has a whole protocol for titrating off and it, it's, it follows a hyperbolic curve so you actually go less and less and less and less and less in smaller amounts which I'm sure you've done so you can't just stop because the, the reason you get worse side effects is because your brain physically has changed and um, so you've got you're dealing with this physical reaction and that's and withdrawal it's taken years to 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 get the the, the the NIC nice guidelines to actually even acknowledge that withdrawal exists and still many doctors that don't even acknowledge that when you come off an antidepressant or come off an antipsychotic or even a stimulant or anti-anxiety med there is a withdrawal process and that withdrawal process needs to be guided by um, you need the support of a medical doctor who understands so they can you know, watch your blood pressure and check all the different vital signs. It's really important that you have therapy alongside that, that you don't just do it because it's, you know, it, it does change your brain and that you have a plan in place for how you're going to deal with now you're going to have all the stuff being revealed. And as you said, it doesn't just blunt the lows, it blunts the highs. You change as a person. And, and the other thing is, is that that's not spoken about something is with antidepressants long-term use and doesn't happen to everyone but it happens to enough people for it to be a problem but they get um, numbing of the genitalia so the sexual response becomes very um, very damaged and um, hopefully over time that can heal I, I'm, I'm of the school of thought because I work in the field of neuroplasticity that your brain can always heal your body can always heal just may take time um, but the fact is that it, people then start having problems with you know sexual problems and that in itself can be a whole relationship mm -hmm. issue whole, exactly huge part of our existence and you know so those are things that people aren't told about and it can create things like um peripheral nerve damage so you get various different you know you get changes in how your body feels and people need to be told these things and if they go into them with their eyes open and understand you know maybe a short period of time and then you're going to have to do a withdrawal protocol if you're going with that view then you've got control then you're prepared and then you can manage the situation but most people aren't getting told that like you pointed out yourself and then kids are getting put on these meds they're not safe for adults they're definitely not safe for children there's no safe um, there's no studies showing that they're safe for children they're dangerous and I mean they're giving children as, in the states as young as two they're diagnosing with pediatric bipolar depression it's a joke it's That's not crazy. no ways that you can it's frightening that. actually it's frightening, frightening. And are there when when you look at um, antidepressant medication? Obviously, there is that kind of sexual side effect. You said that it can be damaging with antidepressants, with antipsychotics. Is there um, obviously it's changing? You, I think you were saying the structure of the brain. 
can this cause long-term problems to the brain? Like if, if you don't try to sort of go through the process of therapy to change your belief systems and things and, and go through your process, um, what effect do they have on the structure of the brain long-term? If, if people so, are thinking maybe it's time to consider making yeah, change. No, I would, I, it, it's a really good question. And it's, and, you know, it's, it is scary. The answer is going to be scary, but also hopeful. Yes, it does change your brain. It changes the structure, changes the, um, between the neurons, neurons kind of look like trees. They connect with other neurons, and that that's this, the synapse where they connect. And these little doorways on where they there's like a little pool of water where they the synapse, and then these little doorways on either side of where two two neurons connect. And those those little doorways allow things the different chemicals in and out, and those chemicals carry messages uh, messages through through the brain. And that's not the only way information travels. It also travels in a quantum way as well in fields. But what happens is that those doorways change structure, and they um, it gets it, and that's not good. When they change structure, then the chemical balance goes off, and the neurotransmitters start. You know, they, they what naturally happens in the body is if you're putting in extra uh, chemicals like serotonin that are chemically based, it messes with the serotonin balance, and then it messes with dopamine, and then it messes with all the other chemicals. So nothing works in isolation. Think of the brain and the body, not as a machine that if one part's broken, you can take it out and put it back like if your air conditioner breaks or something. It doesn't work like that with the brain. Every single thing is connected to every single other thing. So every chemical is connected to every structure is connected to it. The entire biochemistry is connected to our structural and systems of our brain and our body. You disrupt one part, the whole lot suffers. And that kind of thing is what's happening in the brain and the body. And the more you on it, the more damage occurs unfortunately now when you titrate off very carefully your brain is starting to heal the reason we people experience withdrawal is because of the fact that the structure of the brain has been changed in this way and the body and therefore when you stop the brain's got to adjust and because of the nature of the adjustment you you can feel more depressed and more anxious and a lot of people if they, if they don't manage it they get tremendous suicidal ideation even, mm, even a lot of yeah, there we go. A lot of attempts, suicide attempts are made when people withdraw incorrectly. And that's why it's so important that you have in your withdrawal plan that you have um, people that you can text if you have suicidal or that you can connect with when you have the suicidal ideation, if you have a suicidal plan. You need to feel comfortable to be able to talk about that because there's a good chance it will come up. Um, and and not must... be rushed, right? Because you made the point that many doctors almost like don't see that you need to titrate off. I I so my, I, I remember at the time my psychiatrist was not in favor of me doing it. I had a very understanding GP who said, we'll do this together only once right? and see. And he was very helpful. But actually, I was still left to kind of figure out the dose because the symptoms were so strong. I had to go a lot more slowly for anyone listening who maybe is trying to transition off. I had to go way more slowly than they were advising. And even when I got down to I mean, it was difficult because there was obviously an antipsychotic and antidepressant. So the first thing I did was to come off the antipsychotic and just completely come off that first and then look at the antidepressant. And the, that, that whole process took months and I had to have an awareness. Like you were saying, if you bring awareness to the issue of this is the medication withdrawal, it's not me. It's not, I am not that withdrawal. I had to kind of tell myself, I had to go so, so slowly and definitely like what you were saying there, you know, my husband was a big part of that process supporting me because it's mm. hard, right? And you do need someone, I think, right by your side, because as you say, those suicidal thoughts and everything you have before is coming right back thick and fast. No, it is really bad. I mean, I've spoken to so many of my patients when I was still practicing. I would work with doctors because I'm not a medical doctor. I'm, a, I'm, I'm trained in the mind. And so I would work with medical doctors to help people with um, coming with withdrawal. And but just that, you know, that and then also over the years, I have emails from people and direct, thousands of people contact us. And um, the, the, the important thing is a couple, a couple of things you said that I want to underscore is that's coming up collectively from my own experience working with people. Um, and I've never been on the medication, the drugs myself, but I've had my own experience in my practice. And then over the years, reaching with people through the platform we have and in plus working with professionals is that and and research that's done is that it's unique to each person at time the slower it's a hyperbolic curve so it's it's really you've got to go very very slowly to titrate you can't just oh, half today half tomorrow it's really there's a whole formula that is worked out and the time is definitely different for every person 
um you're in the you guys you you, you i don't know your audience probably reaches global audience but in yeah, the US, global the uk is much easier to find um support the university college london's doing a lot of work and um, the royal college of psychiatrists even though they still push meds does have as i mentioned earlier a whole website um, a whole link on the website you can just google um, Royal College Psychiatrist Drug Withdrawal. And there's a whole protocol. There's people that you can contact. Vital that you have a mind management process in place. And I love how you said, um, you know, when you have the withdrawal, this is a signal. This is not who you are. Mm-hmm. You're showing up like this because of the withdrawal process. And that applies to everything. If you are in, let's say, let's move drugs aside for a moment, how you show up today because it is because of what you're going through. Either something new has happened today and you're reacting like that, or there's a there's a whole lot of different sequences of things that have created this pattern. But who you are is not the same as how you're showing up. How you're showing up is because of, and we need to do the work to find the because of. The drugs don't do that. You do that. And so it's very important that um, when you are, all of us as humans, not just those diagnosed with mental health, everyone battles with their mental health. And it's so normal. It's not when they talk about statistics increasing, I always look at this and think and say, hey, listen, it's not that only now there's some people that don't have problems and there's some people that do. Everyone battles, but on a continuum, depending on where they're at in their life and what they're going through. And when we take that, when we level the playing fields like that, and we acknowledge that you could be at a 10 maybe versus a one, one being maybe not just a day-to-day struggle, 10 being a real major thing, all of us are on that scale at some point in our life, every every day of our life. So we all need mind management. So the crisis in mental health, I do not believe is coming from an increase in these diseases because they can't even explain that. What they don't explain, there's always, oh, it's social media, oh, it's COVID, oh, they're always looking for an external um, thing that people are doing to themselves and and they also then look at oh the individual people's brains are not working properly so it's always removed um it's always the individual versus we need to look at society we need to look at socioeconomic poverty depression uh, the environment is affecting us child rearing there's nothing wrong with social media it's how we're managing social media there's things wrong in society. How are we managing, managing these things? So we need to address as a global society, we need to address the big questions. That is, we have to look at a person's environment and we have to have a plan in place for that. But while that's happening, which takes a long time, we as individuals have to know how to manage ourselves. So we've got to know how to recognize these, this is not who I am, but I'm showing up in a way that's definitely disrupting my day-to-day functioning or disrupting my child's day-to-day functioning. Therefore, what can I do now with myself? Because I live with myself 24-7. You're not single coach, counselor, therapist 24-7. You're living with yourself and you've got to know how to manage yourself between those sessions. You know, And in, maybe you don't even have access financially to going to therapists. It's very expensive. So that's why we're trying to make um, mental health accessible and affordable to help people to understand this basic principle from young and whatever age you're at. I mean, we have every age group using the system and and understanding, you know, giving people that hope that, you know what, I can empower myself to recognize a signal, deconstruct and reconstruct, if that makes sense. And I can get off these meds because they're making me feel bad. There are There is hope out there. You're not only the only you know and that's the wrong way of saying it all of us are battling as I keep saying in some way and all of us need to learn to manage our mental health and one last thing related to this is 50 60 years ago when the first medic drugs were discovered there was a shift and then with the mid in the mid 90s with the discovery of the MRI there was a shift to the biomedical model and a blurring of lines occurred between people battling with life and people having actual medical issues like a tumor or traumatic brain injury or something like that, or birth trauma or something. Now it's all blurred into one. When I was trained, they were separated and we treated them. If someone had a major trauma in their life, sexual abuse versus someone who had a TBI, you didn't treat them in the same way, traumatic brain injury. Even though they're both dealing with mental health crises and medical issues, those are two totally different things. You can't tell them they have a mental illness. Now, both of those would be categorized as having mental illnesses and get given a drug for mental illness. That's crazy. Those drugs, traumatic brain injury, you've already got damage to your brain. You don't need more damage by getting an antipsychotic or an antidepressant. You need to rebuild your brain. So a lot of my early work went around how do we rebuild our brain if you've had a traumatic brain injury and how do you manage it if you've had an extreme trauma? You know, And that shift that occurred got worse and worse. So the crisis we see now 
we cannot, we've got to stop blaming social media and COVID. Yes, those are things that happened, but all throughout history, things have happened. World War mm-hmm. I, World War II. Crises are part of life. So it's not, and change is part of life. So it's not the fact that it's not the change. It is how we've managed the change. So mind management is key. And what we have done is not manage them, how we've not managed being a human in life very well over the last 40 years. And so now we have this massive crisis in mental health. So we've got to reintroduce mind management. And our children, Gen Alpha, Gen Z, are growing up in an environment and millennials and um, you know, yourself included, you've grown up in an era of, oh, mental health is a disease and drugs fix it. And that's so unfortunate. The boomers, which is my age and beyond, we saw it started there, but there was, okay, there's life. And then there's, there's illness that happens. Mental health has always been around, but it was still seen as, as separated. And so it's worse now because we don't be made, well, not we, I'm not in that, I don't work in that realm. I work, I don't believe in the biomedical model. I've never worked in the biomedical model. Um, but when we, the introduction of the biomedical model has, I believe, taken away mind management and therefore we don't manage anything properly, change, social media, et cetera. Therefore we land up in a, with a crisis and our kids are growing up being told, if you have an emotion that makes you feel sad and you have it more than once or a few times, there's something wrong with you. Last thing I'll say then, I keep saying last thing, but they did, they do surveys and they did some surveys recently in schools in the UK and in the United States, seeing that to look at is mental health screening helping and it's making things worse. It's making adolescents feel worse about themselves because now they feel crazy on top of it so the questions and the questions are so um, biased that they're kind of scared to ask to answer them because they're going to get categorized and they're going to be seen as different so it's created a more of a stigma than less of a stigma it's scary and the self-harming and doing i mean it's frightening it's frightening just when you see some people some some children who have literally cuts all the way down their arms you know from the top of their shoulder all the way through just scored their bodies and and yeah it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking that energy never gets lost so if if you've got a crisis in your life and social media certainly has accelerated our ability to see other people's lives that can and or get bullied more bullying now goes home with you it doesn't stop when you leave school it it goes to bed with you at night on your cell phone so yes that that if we don't help our kids manage that you've got this energy building up and this pain in you and if you don't know how to talk about it you know that energy is transferred into cutting or suicide or you know, behavioral issues, you know, that that kind of thing. So it's got to go somewhere, the energy, so it goes in the wrong direction. So I'm saying, okay, let's give these kids a space. Let's give adults a space. Let's allow ourselves to be messy and allow ourselves to understand that humanity is messy. And let's look at our, give ourselves a way and tools to be able to process and not just random tools all over the place. Everyone talks about meditation and breathing and these are all great, but if you don't use them in the right sequence, they can make you worse. I mean, people don't talk about this meditation if it's done incorrectly will make you worse because it brings it's like a plane think of it like this a plane takes off the pilot first checks everything and the co-pilot and the engineers and then they take off that's an awareness that's created that's like meditation and breathing and whatever but if you now don't know how to fly the plane it will crash so if you just meditate and become aware of stuff and just start naming your emotions but you don't know what to do with them you'll crash and that's what's happening if you just work on mindfulness and awareness and meditation and breathing. It's going to help you in the moment. But now all the stuff that's come up, now what do I do with it? So the research is showing that those alone aren't enough. You've got to go beyond those. And that's what my research falls in that category. I believe in all of those, meditation, breathing, mindfulness, all of it. I, it's in my work. It's in my, my app, my NeuroCycle app in the new book. But it's, um, it's a brain preparation phase. You prepare the brain, you the co-pilot, you check all the things that are in place. You with the pilot, you do the preparation before, then you take off, then you fly the plane, then you land the plane so you don't crash. So the neurocycle helps you do all of that. Prepare, take off, fly, and land. And if you don't do that cycle in the right time sequence, people will get stuck and people will crash. And that's what's happening. That is happening. I'm so grateful for your work. I know that you a short on time you have to go I could probably talk to you for a lot longer but I'm really grateful for you coming on and, and sharing all of this um the new book is out obviously for children I think it helps both parents and children you have a whole suite of books um please share Dr Caroline where can people find more that's the book how to help your child 
you know, it. it's brilliant. I highly recommend people go and buy it. You've got the we've got a coloring book as well that goes, oh gosh, it's this blurring thing it doesn't work properly. Here we go. Amazing. And there's a toy. Probably the best place is to go to my my um, Instagram page, so or my social media, Dr. Caroline Leaf, and from there you can get to everything. Um, you can find you know drleaf.com is my web page. Books are sold. Books available wherever books are sold. So amazing. To get hold of it. Thank you. We will we will link to all of that and just thank you so much for the work that you're doing and if just helping more people, as you say, take off, fly and land that plane on a daily basis, what a different society we could all be living in. Agree with you. Thank you so much for sharing this message and for what you do. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. If you enjoy this podcast, visit femalebiohacker.com and be part of a special community of women looking to optimize their mind, body, and spirit. If you're tired of sifting through countless websites and books to find the answers to your questions about nutrition, fitness, hormones, mindset, spirituality, and biohacking, the search is over. I've done the research for you and every week we go live with in-depth masterclasses, Q&A calls and monthly challenges to help you transform your life. And when you join the collective, you'll have access to a wealth of information, including deep dive masterclasses and biohacking toolkits on our members' favorites like metabolic flexibility, gut health, stress and resiliency, and stepping into your most empowered self. Get access and be coached by me and my team and level up your health, career and life all for less than a dollar a day. Go to femalebiohacker.com or click the link below to get started and I'll see you on the inside.